Okay, we are all the way to page three, and so that's where we're picking up tonight. Just uh, for a few new faces here, let's just do a real quick review. Last week, we sort of introduced the topic of dispensationalism, what it is, what it isn't. Probably spent the first 20 minutes talking about what it isn't, uh, just because the, uh, uh, the idea of dispensationalism has gotten a lot of bad press time. Uh, maybe you haven't heard it, but uh, uh, out there in the big bad world, uh, there are some who are who do not like the idea of dispensationalism. Largely, I think because they because dispensationalism has, in the minds of some, broken the people of God into two. So you've got Israel, you've got the church as somehow separate peoples of God or two parts of the one people of God. And uh, uh, the, those who object to dispensationalism, generally, if they're, if they're informed objections, they're objecting to the fact uh, that there is not continuity between the one people of God uh, and there's not continuity between the way we all relate uh, to the law, no continuity with the uh, way we relate to our government. Okay, And so we've, we've broken up, is the idea, that we've broken up the flow of history into epochs or administrations more accurately. Uh, and uh, so that's, 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 you know, and so we've, so we've, we've looked then at, really four options, uh, four ways of doing theology, four ways of viewing the biblical storyline. And we started with dispensationalism and said it's a way of looking at the storyline as a series of administrations uh, whereby God is working out his eternal decree in, in different ways at different points in history. Uh, the opposite of that was covenant theology, sometimes called reformed theology, which says that there is, instead of several epochs, there is one grand covenant uh, that that sort of that uh, that controls all of what is God doing, what God is doing in His universe, and there is, and it's marked especially by the word continuity. Everything's everything's the same. The laws the same. The people are the same. Uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. And then we looked at a couple of mediating positions as well. But really what we're looking at when we're talking about dispensationalism, if, if, we, can, if we can boil it down uh, to what we're talking about, is a way of looking at the storyline of the Bible. Okay? How are we to look at the whole Bible and see how God is working iteratively throughout uh, the course of biblical history? Now, so here we are now on page three, and so we ask the question, why, why do we need dispensationalism? Why is it, why is it important uh, that this be presented here and stressed and taught, and the others, others not? Well, uh, let, me, let me go through a couple of points here, about four points I've got, and, then, uh, and perhaps we can, we can generate some questions uh, at the end of that if uh, you've got them. First of all, I think it gives reasons for otherwise arbitrary changes throughout biblical history. Okay? For instance, I give five examples. We really could multiply these out, but I give five. It gives a rationale, for, for instance, for suspending the need for circumcision, a law that God enforced in the Old Testament on pain of death. Okay? So in Exodus 4, 26 to, 24 to 26, 
we find not only is circumcision uh, foisted upon all uh, the young Jewish boys that are born, but when Moses is discovered as having not circumcised his son, God was, was inclined to kill him. I mean, it was that serious to God. They, they weren't, they weren't, uh, he wasn't, Moses was not, uh, was not maintaining the distinction of Israel among the nations, and he had not circumcised his children, and God expressed this intent to kill Moses. I mean, this is, I mean, this is serious stuff, okay? But then when we come to Acts 15, uh, we find that there's a council, really, uh, in the early church, uh, apparently there's some confusion. In fact, much of what we find in the book of Acts is, 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 is detailing here a lot of these changes that have occurred. Changes from the Jewish system to the current ecclesiastical church system. Okay? And one of the big questions they had was, what about circumcision? Should we tell parents to get their little boys circumcised? The Jews say, yes, you've got to do it. But the Gentiles, it's a foreign concept to them. They they don't, they don't do this. Okay, so, so, so what should we do? They call this, this meeting, I, I sort of say tongue-in-cheek, uh, the early church got, gets together to decide whether, they're not, whether, they're, whether or not they're going to be dispensationalists or not. <laughs> and they decide they will, if I, can, if I can put it that way. They say it's no longer important. Okay? You, cannot, you should not compel Gentiles uh, to circumcise their little baby boys. You can't do that. Circumcision is nothing. Non-circumcision is nothing. Okay, that, that false statement, right? It doesn't matter anymore. So how do we go from it being so important that God was willing to kill his lead man for not doing it to, eh, doesn't matter any longer? Well, dispensationalism has a very clean explanation of it. It's not as though covenant theology has no explanations at all. But I think dispensationalism offers a better example. We're moving from one administration to another entirely different administration. I think it explains why animal sacrifices are no longer offered each week for sin, and then why they will be offered again in the millennium. Okay? Uh, we're not really sure when the practice of, of animal sacrifices began in earnest. Um, we have bits and pieces to suggest that there were sacrifices going on prior to, uh, the, uh, to, to the giving of the law, uh, but there doesn't seem to be any rule governing exactly how and when and why and where. Once we get to the law, it's mandated, okay? And everybody does it. You must do it in order to be rightly related to the people of God. When we come to the, uh, to the, to the death of Christ, animal sacrifices are immediately suspended. Okay, and, and so covenant theology would say, aha, there's, there's a sacrifice that is offered once for all. There's no longer any use for the sacrifices, and that makes sense. But then as you look at Ezekiel 40 to 48, you find that in the end times, the temple's going to be rebuilt, and all of the animal sacrifices are going to be reinstated with the exception of the atonement, the, the, the day of atonement sacrifice. Okay? We scratch our heads at that and say, wait a minute, why did that happen? Well, we're going to talk about that. I think dispensationalism has a very clean answer as to why sacrifice wasn't, was, wasn't, was. 
It gives a rationale, thirdly, here for the changing laws concerning unclean animals. Again, we've got, if we've got this prior to Genesis 9, prior to the flood, uh, people were apparently not supposed to eat animals. They were given every vegetable plant of the garden as food. Flood comes along, and for reasons that aren't really explained, we have some ideas perhaps, but reasons that are not really explained by God, he says in Genesis 9-3, you may now eat meat. Just as you used to eat plants, now you can also eat meat. Okay, so Noah's allowed to eat meat. Track along for a few, few, few more chapters, and we come to Exodus, and it says, okay, you can eat meat, but only certain kinds of meat. Okay. Uh, pork's out. Cow's in. Okay. And then we track along a few more centuries now, and we come to Acts 9, 10, 11. We find uh, Peter has this vision. Okay. And this sheet comes down out of heaven. All sorts of animals, clean and unclean, wandering around on this sheet. I'm, I'm not sure what picture you have in your mind. It's kind of convoluted <laughs> for me. Uh, but he ha- has these animals up and down on this sheet, and, uh, um, and, and what's the statement? Arise, Peter, kill, eat. What's Peter say? No, 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 no. Absolutely not. That's forbidden. And what's God's response? But I have declared clean, don't declare unclean. Okay, exactly right. So, no meat, any meat, restricted meat, any meat. Okay, we've got this. We've got this sequence going along, and dispensationalism gives a very clean answer as to why it is that way. Covenant theology, with its uh, with its with its emphasis on continuity, has greater difficulty explaining those those changes in in God's administration. It also gives a rationale, letter D here, for changes in divinely ordained holy days, including even one that is part of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, that's one of the Ten Commandments, fourth one, right? Ten, uh, one of the Ten Commandments. If, if there's any part of the law that, that lives on, it would be the Ten Commandments, right? And yet, this one does not seem to have any expression in the New Testament. In fact, when you get to Romans 14.6, what does Paul say about the, observ- the observance of the Sabbath? Eh, let every man be convinced in his own mind. Oh, oh, wait a minute. This this is one of the Ten Commandments. And now God, through Paul, says, let every man be convinced in his own mind whether you're going to observe the Sabbath, Saturday, or Sunday, or apparently other days. Okay, now we've, I mean, our culture has been set up around Sunday, and I I think it's probably best to maintain that. So I'm not I'm not advocating for you know a, a radical change in our in our in our weekly schedule here, uh, but Paul's Paul's statement seems to be nah, whatever. Every man be convinced in his own mind of the Ten Commandments, right? No. Uh, so so again, dispensationalism can give a very clean explanation of that. Covenant theology can. Fifthly, letter E, it explains changes in the mission of God's people from age to age. Uh, I think perhaps one of the biggest things is in the Old Testament, you see nothing of foreign missions. Uh, The closest you get is Jonah, and that seems to be a special case. Um, You don't don't see a lot of 
the personal evangelism, uh, much less uh, missions and uh, church planting uh, outside the borders of Israel. And the explanation seems to be that in that era, Israel was to function as a priest for the nation, something of a magnet for the rest of the nations to stream to her light. We see a little bit of a glimpse of this with, with Solomon, right? When, when, when we have, we have the representatives of the nations of the earth coming through and, 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 and uh, presenting themselves to Solomon. And, and, it, and it's for, 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 a, for a brief window, we get a glimpse of the way it was supposed to be, but a short lift. Okay? But we find in Isaiah 61, this is going to be in, in the millennium, this is all going to... This is all going to come back with a vengeance, and it's, and it's going to be a wonderful experience where the nations will stream to her light and, and take, take advantage of her, high, of her priestly services uh, for the nations. Okay? Um, but in the New Testament, we don't see everyone coming. We see us going. Okay? Complete reversal. And uh, we find Paul, I mean, really, the, the story of the New Testament is Paul's expansion from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay, so, so why the change? Well, dispensationalism has a very good answer to it for it. The, uh, uh, the covenant theologian, I think, has a more difficult time. I think even within the ministry of Christ, you find a little bit of this, uh, because in, uh, for instance, uh, uh, when, when the disciples are sent out in Matthew 10, when Christ is offering the kingdom immediately, he sends them out says, don't, don't take any extra food with you, don't take an extra garment, don't take a purse filled with money, and don't take a sword. Just go out and broadcast that the king is here, accept him. Of course, we all know what happens. They reject the king. They don't accept him. Uh, in fact, there's something of a crisis point in Matthew 12, it appears, where uh, they attribute the miracles of Christ uh, to Beelzebub, Satan, and the leaders of the Jewish nation reject Christ, uh, followed by the majority of the people. And so then, as we come to the very end of Christ's ministry, he, he issues a new mission to his disciples. Uh, probably best seen in Luke chapter 22, where he says, well, before, you know, verse, uh, maybe we can look there, uh, Luke, uh, Luke 22, he says, verse 35, Jesus says, when I sent you without purse, bag, sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they said. Then he said to them, now, changing the ground rules, <coughs> now, if you have a purse, take it, also a bag. If you know, you know, basically a second set of clothes here. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. So, so what's the difference? Well, because it's a different mission, a different message. Okay? Before they were saying the king is here, embrace him. Now we're settling down for the long haul in the church age. Okay, now make preparations for the long haul. You're going to you're going to be sending missionaries out to the far reaches of the earth, send them in a prepared way. Okay. Well, why, why, the, why, the, why the change in mission? Well, again, dispensationalism has a very clean answer to it. I'm not sure that, this, that covenant theology has as, has a, has as good an, exam, an explanation. It also explains other 
differences, dispensationalism does, between the Testament. Explains differences in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testaments. And we find often as you go through the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit comes upon people, and then he leaves people, and comes upon people, and leaves people. We don't see this so much in the New Testament, but we do find new things in the New Testament. We find that baptizing work of the Holy Spirit and the gifting work of the Holy Spirit to operate within this new organism called the church. Dispensationalism also explains differences between the two peoples. Differences of purpose, origin, and destiny. When did these begin? Where are they going? And what is their purpose? Differences of admission qualification. Now, we've covered that a little bit already. How, how do you get into uh, the, Jew, the, the Jewish community? Well, you're born into it. And if you're a little boy, you've got to be circumcised. How do you get into the church? Well, as many as received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added 3,000, 5,000 people uh, to the life of the church. See, also differences in relationship to human government. Okay. Prior to uh, Christ's ministry, the government and the ecclesiastical structures, the, the, the I'll, I don't want to call it church because it's not church, but the, uh, but the uh, cultic structures, and, and, and I mean that in the, in, the, in the best of senses, the uh, religious forms, they were all tied together into one organism. Okay, it was Israel. Okay. Now we come to the New Testament, and Christ says, okay, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. Well, that's not something that would have been said in the Old Testament. So all of these, all of these are differences and changes in administration uh, that accrue to us uh, as, we, as we work our way through the scriptures. The problem with the vast majority of the, of the denominations that we have on uh, Roman Catholic Church especially, but also a lot of uh, in the Reformation uh, under Zwingli and, and Calvin and Luther and all those, they, 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 they moved away from the Catholic Church, but only this much, where they should move this much, and the Anabaptists saw that. Right. But I'm just wondering, does that, is it because, is, is because a lot of those people equated Israel and the church, that they had no problem being, you know, married to yes. the state, and, and the Anabaptists in their, in their infancy kind of saw that, hey, you know, hey, that, that's a problem in this dispensation, even if maybe they didn't enunciate it, but isn't that kind of true? Yes, yes, I, I would agree. Yeah, when, when we had the Protestant Reformation, 16th century, um, what we really are saying happened right off is that there was a reformation of their soteriology, their, their understanding of justification predominantly. The, the rest of the reformation of the church occurred over the course of centuries and in fact in some senses I don't know that it, like you say in some denominations I don't even think it's complete yet okay you're, you're right I think we have these dominant expressions state churches which are telling people how in fact we're going to see this as we look through the history this is how dispensationalism emerges the the dominant or the, the you know the, the dominant expression of religion within a given country would offer no exceptions, and the, and it was it was a governmentally enforced adherence to this set of religious ideals. 
And so what ends up happening is there are breakoffs. These are these are these are protesters against the Protestants. You know, they're, they're dissidents. They're uh, they're, uh, they're they're nonconformists. And, and it's among these nonconformists that you start seeing elements of dispensationalism until finally we come to Darby, and Darby. Uh, John Nelson Darby is probably the first one who comes and actually organizes a system which is called dispensationalism in in in, in his uh, efforts to uh, distance himself from the Irish Anglican Church. We'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah. But a lot of the state's church people don't they elect, don't they also besides being state church people like in England and, and uh, Germany and whatnot don't they don't they see a, the quality of Israel and the church. Right. Because Israel because Israel was a if I could put it a church state conglomerate. And I, I use the term church loosely. It's it's the religious structures and the civic structures are tied together okay. in Israel, if I can put it that way, it's probably more accurate. They they understood that that's the way it should be. Okay. And so you find in Europe you have these state churches that are really trying to model themselves after Old Testament Israel. Thirdly here, dispensationalism better explains all of God's activities in the universe. We'd said earlier that covenant theology uh, focuses very tightly on the covenant of redemption as the thing that ties everything together. The problem with this, it cannot account well for anything outside the very small world of the elect. Events before the fall, before this covenant of works, after the consummation, what is God doing after everything's put back together? Not to mention the collected masses of the non-elect, the angels. There's, there's no covenant with the angels. In fact, you read through Hebrews, what does it say? God, when Christ died, he didn't die for angels. He couldn't die for angels because he couldn't become one of them as, far, as, as part of this this. This, this, this social group. Yeah, there was no way to connect them. Uh, and so God, Christ didn't die for the angels. There's no hope for the angels that sinned. Okay? So how does this fit within the idea that the whole of the Bible is about God establishing a, a covenant of redemption with special reference to his elect? What about those who are not part of this covenant? I think dispensationalism does a better job explaining uh, what's going on. There's something broader going on than just redemption. We'll talk about that in more detail below. And then I think, finally, it answers the need for a consistent hermeneutic. Uh, Again, we'll talk about this below, but for the present, it's worthwhile to note that dispensationalism can make sense of the whole Bible without changing the reference. God says to Abraham, your seed will be as, as, as great as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the heaven. And he makes a series of promises to Abraham. And then he makes a series of promises to David. And then we come to the church, and those promises don't seem to apply to us. Well, it's true. They don't apply to us, certainly not in the same sense as they applied to Abraham's family and to David's family. Well, covenant theology would sort of merge and meld all of these together uh, but uh, and change the reference. Well, it was for Abraham, but it was also kind of for us. Or it was, it was for 
Abraham's spiritual seed, and he gets a spiritual land, and we're part of the spiritual seed, and we're inhabiting the spiritual land. Uh, well, that's not the promise that was made to Abraham. He said there would be a physical seed, and a, and a, and a land, in fact, the dimensions of the land are given in great detail. Okay. The prom- and so, so what does covenant theology do? Well, we just sort of have to make that promise somewhat malleable. It's kind of like Plato. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll change it up. We'll, we'll expand the reference. We'll add, uh, we'll add uh, uh, recipients to these promises that were not there. We'll actually change the promises because, you know, we know what happened to Israel. They, they blew it. And so God turned his attention to the Gentiles. And so, yeah, it's not, it's not Abraham's literal seed because they blew it. It's a spiritual seed, us. Okay. Well, I think think that that sort of takes the normal word, use of words and sort of twists it and turns it in a way that's not natural. Okay. Uh, so again, uh, the point of dispensationalism is it makes the most clean hermeneutic or, or way of reading the scriptures. Okay. Does these, do these make sense? Do these, these follow? Clarification? Question? Okay. Last time we uh, we quickly ran through this bibliography. Let me uh, point out again some of the ones that, if you say I I want, I want to read a little bit more on this, this is firehose stuff. I'd like to get a little bit more information. I've 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 squeezed down my bibliography. It's normally about three pages, so I've squeezed it down to a half a page of the ones I think are the perhaps the best sources, or most accessible sources uh, to uh, to help you along here. And let me narrow it down further. Uh, by, by pointing out one or two or three that are are, are, are tops on my list. Charles Ryrie's Dispensationalism is still, I think, the, uh, the premier expression of the dispensational system. Uh, there are others, but I think this one still reigns as the, as the, uh, the, the best overall uh, introduction here. Um, I think I also mentioned that Reynolds Showers there really is a difference, I think, is a, is a very helpful introduction, not as technical as Ryrie's, and so perhaps uh, if you don't want a technical introduction, this might be a little more popular introduction. And then Michael Vlock, the very last one here, Dispensationalism, Essential Beliefs, and Common Myths. It's a very short book. It's only 60 pages long, but I think it gives a really nice summary of, of, the, of the key points of dispensationalism. Um, other than that, I'd like to, to point out Alva J. McLean's Greatness of the Kingdom, uh, which in, in my estimation is really the best biblical theology that's ever been written. It uh, takes, takes us through the biblical storyline and ties it in with the unifying theme of, of God's kingdom. So it's a little bit longer, uh, perhaps a little harder to follow, but I think it's well worth your while. If you want to understand the unfolding of the biblical storyline, he just does a fabulous job with it. So those are some books that you might, uh, if you want to uh, explore this a little bit further, uh, you might be able to do it. The other sources are helpful too, but I think probably those are the, I would say, the top four on this list. Okay. Let's talk a little bit now about history. Um, Of course, history doesn't Establish or unestablish uh, the validity of any sort of theological system. I mean, if, if we're talking about longevity, 
uh, that Roman Catholicism probably wins the day. If, if, the, the, if the system that's been around the longest wins, uh, then Roman Catholicism just won. Okay? Uh, but we don't use history as the basis for saying whether something's right or wrong. Still, history, I think, can help us understand where systems are coming and why they are happening, why they are developing, when they are developing, and, uh, and, and I think knowing those details helps us understand better why they exist and perhaps gives us a greater appreciation for them. So let's do this. Okay, first of all, I start here uh, with the charge of novelty. A lot of people will uh, dismiss dispensationalism because uh, really until about 1833, uh, the idea of dispensationalism doesn't appear as an organized system within church history. So we're talking less than 200 years. Okay, that's 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 a that's a troubling admission that I have to make uh, because it, it, it makes you wonder. Okay, what about the 1800 years before that? Why didn't why didn't anybody see this prior to that? Well, hopefully we're going to be able to uh, explore. Uh, some of the reasons why that is true, and then perhaps uh, soften a little bit that statement that nobody saw this before that. Also, I want to point out that the idea of covenant theology, it, it goes back to the early, 17, uh, early 17th century, which is twice as long as dispensationalism. But, again, when you look at the whole picture of the history of the church of 2,000 years, 200 years for dispensationalism, 400 years for covenant theology, and then 1,500 years for Roman Catholicism. Okay, maybe, maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but probably at least 1,000 years. Um, okay, so we, we look at that and say, okay, covenant theology comes out a little bit better than dispensationalism, but not a whole lot. So if history is our guide, again, I'm not sure that uh, any of our Protestant systems are going to win out. Uh, so, again, history is not our, our governing factor here. Okay, it's not... I say here, normative to doctrinal accuracy. Okay, uh, Just because it's a, the, do, the dominant or predominant position of history doesn't mean it's the right one. Okay, So, having said that, let's go and see if we can't find uh, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the precedents uh, for dispensationalism early in the church. Okay? Millard Erickson and others claim that there is no trace of dispensational theology in the writings of the church fathers. Okay. However, I would say here, virtually all of the doctrines specific to the dispensational system appear before Darby, particularly in the first three centuries of the church. And they appear not as aberrations or strange flyers, uh, but as norms. They're just not all together in a system. Uh, for heavy documentation of that, I, I point you to Larry Crutchfield's series of articles in the Conservative Theological Journal. He does a very good job here. Um, let, me, let me point out some of these. Literal interpretation, that is, taking the, the words of Scripture plainly without changing their meaning, was the prevailing method of interpretation from the death of Christ until what is known as the Alexandrian school in the 3rd century. So the first 200, 250 years of church history, literal inter interpretation was the norm. 
We also find that when allegory or the idea that the scriptures are not to be taken as strict prophecy, uh, but as, alleg- as allegories or, uh, or, or types of, uh, of, of things that are going to happen, uh, we find that uh, the, the early church tended to allegorize the narrative sections, the stories, and not the prophecies. Now, there's a reason for that. Uh, when you're reading through, if you're reading through the narrative sections of the Bible, you know, the, the long sections of, of Kings and Samuel, and you're, you're reading along. Now, if you need to get from this very quickly a take-home truth for today, you know, you're doing your devotions out of the uh, life of David, and you, you read eight verses, and you and, and he's doing all sorts of shenanigans, being disobedient, and you scratch your head and say, what, what, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to have this as you know, a verse that I can take with me today uh, so I can be refreshed as I, as I, as I go through my life? Well, they're not, it's not there. And so what tended to happen in these long sections of history, they tended to say, okay, there's symbols here. There's allegories. And if you just read between the lines, there is some sort of a devotional take-home truth for you to take with you. Okay? But when it came to the prophecies, there was already a built-in take-home truth. This is going to happen. Prepare for it. Okay? And so what tended to happen early on in the church as allegory began to overtake the normal reading of Scripture, it took, overtook the narrative sections, but left prophecy pretty much alone for, for a while. I mean, eventually the whole of the Old Testament uh, came to be allegorized, uh, but, but not early on, okay? And, and if you take a look at, uh, at contemporary theology, dispensation, you know, we find, you know, even dispensationalists sometimes allegorize the narrative portions. But the same thing, when it came to prophecy, there was no need to allegorize anything. The, 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 the application was, was right there. This is coming. Prepare for it. Okay. He didn't need to allegorize it. And so uh, uh, that, that's, uh, that's a first point. Literal interpretation was dominant in the early church. I've got some, some, some sections I'm going to read here, uh, but uh, hopefully that doesn't become dull for you. But uh, I've got some readings from the church fathers that I just want to uh, read to you here. But uh, secondly here, the church fathers were virtually unanimous in affirming an earthly and Jewish premillennialism prior to the 4th century okay what's premillennialism again before the thousand year reign of Christ okay so what what's, what happens before the thousand year reign of Christ rapture rapture and tribulation tribulation and second coming uh, technically, it's the second coming that's the dominant thought here. Uh, but, I mean, it's true. Tribula- the rapture and tribulation come first. But it's the second coming that precedes the tribulation. So Christ comes in power and glory and reigns for a thousand years. Okay? Over a predominantly Jewish kingdom where Israel takes the lead among the nations. They are the priests for the nations. Okay? So in the early church, we find that the church fathers were almost unanimous in affirming an earthly and Jewish premillennialism prior to the 4th century. 
Uh, Barnabas and Papias, both only a single generation removed from the Apostle John, both held to premillennialism. So did Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. In fact, they indicated that this was taught not by a few, but was the orthodox, most common and accepted understanding of the early church. Let me, let me just uh, uh, read a little bit here from Justin. This is the dialogue with Trypho, just so you're, if you want to look it up. He says here, If you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, who do not admit that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the Jewish people regathered and made joyful for a thousand years with Christ and the patriarchs and the prophets, both the men of our nation and the other uh, proselytes who joined them before Christ came, and if they venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham, do not imagine they are Christians. I mean, it's pretty, pretty strong stuff. If you don't believe that Christ is going to come and reign over a Jewish millennium for a thousand years, you're not a Christian. That's pretty strong. I wouldn't even say that. Uh, but uh, but this, is, this is Justin. Irenaeus. I mean, this is somewhat flowery language here again, but uh, if you track along, I think you can catch this. Inasmuch, he says, therefore, as the opinions of some are derived from heretical discourses, they are both ignorant of God's dispensations, of the earthly kingdom, which is the commencement of incorruption, it is necessary to tell them, respecting those things, that it behooves the righteous first to receive the promise of the inheritance which God promised to our fathers, and to reign in it, when they shall rise again to behold God in this creation which is renovated. Not in heaven, but in this creation which is renovated, the second coming of Christ, and that the judgment will take place afterward. So there is a renovated earth in which Christ reigns, and after this reign there will be a final judgment. For it is this, in this way that the very creation in which they toiled and were afflicted being proved in every way by suffering they should receive the reward of their suffering on this earth and that in this creation in which they were slain because of their love for God in that they should be revived again and that in this creation in which they endured servitude in that they should reign okay so so here, here we've got Irenaeus and Justin basically saying if you don't believe in the in, in, in premillennialism, that Christ is going to come and reign over an, a, a, an earthly Jewish kingdom for a thousand years, followed by the judgment, then your very Christianity is in, in question. Okay. Again, I think perhaps a little bit harsh uh, what they're saying, but the point is made that they believe this early on in the church. Let her see here. Well, Philip Schaff notes. He's a uh, historian from the uh, 18th century, 19th century, a non-premillennialist, says premillennialism was the most striking point in the eschatology of the Antonicene age, that is the first three centuries of the early church. Letter C. Although many of the church fathers regarded God's rejection of the Jewish nation as irreversible, they were careful to maintain sharp distinctions between historic groups of believers. The church was not spiritual Israel, but a new and distinct group, first gathered at Pentecost and selected by God to be co-recipients of the Old Testament promises with the righteous who lived before Abram and the righteous descendants of Abraham. 
So, for instance, Barnabas, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus all say uh, the same thing, uh, that there are three separate groups, the people before Abraham, the righteous children of Abraham, and then us. Okay, so there's these three groups. So uh, probably not seven dispensations really represented here, but more than just a, a, a single group. The imminent rapture of the church was also common among the early church fathers. Now, most of the church fathers, I have to admit this, viewed their own sufferings as part of the tribulation. They were going through some horrific uh, persecution in the, in the early centuries of the church. And, and many of them understood that what they were living through was the tribulation that was promised for the uh, Jewish nation. So most were either post-tribulational or mid-tribulational, so that Christ either comes at the end of the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation. Larry Crutchfield, I think, uh, uh, probably uh, does well in describing the early view of the fathers as what he calls imminently intra-tribulational. The, the, the early church fathers believed themselves to be in the tribulation, but they expected Christ to come and rescue them before the very worst parts of the tribulation would come. Okay. Now, granted... Most dispensationalists say the tribulation hasn't started yet and it won't until after the rapture occurs. At the same time, as we look at this early church, we are not seeing the covenant model where there is no, there is no rapture or, or tribulation and it basically we're working our way through the kingdom and still sort of, just sort of ends and the eternal state begins. Okay. Does that make sense? A follow Okay, saints, they understood, would be raptured suddenly and without warning at some point during or and near the end of the tribulation that was currently ongoing. Okay, uh, Erickson notes here that the early church fathers planted the seeds from which the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture would be developed and understands that the premillennialism of the early church uh, early, the church's early centuries may have been included belief in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. This is, uh, uh, perhaps uh, it doesn't ring with such significance to you if you don't understand who Millard Erickson is, but he's he's a he's a he's a well-regarded uh, 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 figure within evangelical theology, uh, a, a very much a proponent of. Of, of historic premillennialism and and a, and a, and a staunch I don't know, enemy, but uh, doesn't like dispensationalists. At the same time, he recognizes that pre-tribulational rapture probably has its seeds in the life of the early church, and uh, all of that is to say that pieces of dispensationalism are very ancient. Maybe not the whole system all coming together, but pieces existed all the way back uh, to the first three centuries of, of the early church. Okay, thought, thoughts on that? Let's go to Darby now, because he, he uh, Darby and Brooks, because I think when we look at these, we get we bring it in sort of the modern era and we can we can resonate perhaps with them. John Nelson Darby uh, was an 
Irish Anglican. Okay, if you know anything about Ireland during the 19th century, you know that it was a period uh, where where the Catholic and Protestant components were practically constantly at war with one another. Okay, and uh, Darby was appointed a rector uh, in the Irish Anglican Church. Interesting, the word rector. Uh, if, if, you, if you can hear the word rectitude in there, okay, he was he was appointed to go out and make people right with God. Okay, so he's basically he's a, he's an evangelist, if I can put it that way. He's appointed as a rector uh, within the Anglican Church, and he goes to the Roman Catholics, and he has an enormous success. Uh, and uh, within it, within a period of about a year, he has about six hundred converts uh, from. Roman Catholicism in Ireland. I mean, this is, I mean, this is, talk about a hard mission field. This was a hard mission field, and yet he's successful. And, he can, and, and under his ministry, 600 Roman Catholics convert to Protestantism. And he wants to bring them into the Anglican Church. And so he, he requests that these people be brought into the Anglican Church, and his request was met with this statement. They must swear allegiance to the King of England if we're going to let them into the Anglican Church. Well, you you ask an Irishman to swear allegiance to the King of England, you're, <laughs> talk about a tall task. Uh, almost impossible. And so uh, Darby is frustrated beyond belief because what has happened is the the state and the church have been so intertwined with one another that they're inseparable. You can't join the church unless you join the state. And so he basically withdraws at that point from the Irish Anglican Communion and starts his own church. Uh, it becomes known as the Plymouth Brethren. Built on the principle, and here's the, here's the issue, on the principle that the present day, the church, is not like Israel. In Israel, yes, you had to bring yourself under the auspices of the king of Israel and also under the, under the rituals, the, 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 the cultic, the temple rituals of the Israel, Israelite nation. You had to have, you had to be, uh, you had to be uh, um, uh, submissive to both in order to be part of this community. That's not the way it is in the church. You have to be have allegiance to God, and that is the uh, that is that is the concern uh, to get you into the church. Now, whether you have specific allegiance to one country or another is irrelevant, Darby says. Okay, because the church and Israel are completely different entities. Okay, and so he starts really what is effectively the first dispensational communion. One that is completely rejecting of the impositions of the state. Because he understood the mission of the church to be different from the mission of Israel. Okay. Questions on that one? I, 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 hopefully you're, you're seeing something pretty interesting here. That eschatology really has nothing to do with the beginning of dispensationalism. Now, it comes pretty quickly because the questions are, okay, if Israel and the church are different animals, different groups of people, 
what is the conclusion of each group and the, and the, uh, and the, uh, and the, the theology that was developing said, okay, Israel has one conclusion, the church has another conclusion, and so eschatology, the, the end times, becomes an important theme within dispensationalism, but that's not where it came from. Okay, and it's, it's an important point to me because I don't think eschatology is the centerpiece of dispensationalism. Okay? Yes, most dispensationalists are pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, but that's not how it started. It didn't start as a, as a, as a, as a system of eschatology. The same thing is true when you come to look at James Hall Brooks. Uh, James Hall Brooks is sometimes called the, the father of American dispensationalism. He has a situation that is at least similar uh, to Darby's. Uh, James Hall Brooks is a, is a pastor in a border church during the American Civil War. He's in St. Louis. And if you understand uh, the, uh, uh, the boundary line between North and South in, uh, in the Civil War, St. Louis was in the middle. In fact, Missouri was one of those swing states. Uh, it was considered a northern state, uh, but a lot of people in it didn't consider themselves northerners. <laughs> so it was a, it, 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 so almost the whole state is a is a border state. Uh, we also have other figures uh, um, like uh, like uh, uh, Brooks, who were in say uh, uh, Louisville, uh, in uh, in Cincinnati, uh, some of the other cities along the Ohio River, and most of them of the Presbyterian persuasion, this is really where dispensationalism comes from uh, in America, is from the Presbyterian community. Why did it happen this way? Well, Brooks was being torn by two groups, Northern Presbyterians and the Southern Presbyterians. And he's being called upon by both assemblies, okay, commit either to being a Northern church or a southern church. Well, here's Brooks, who's got a church of people that are split pretty much right down the middle. Half of them sympathized with the Confederacy, half of them sympathized with the Union. So what's the, whatever his choice is, he's going to split his church right down the middle and he's going to have half of it. Okay. And so his conclusion, his, his statement is, I don't have to declare. Because the church is not a political entity. I don't have to declare my political allegiance in the life of the church because we're not a political entity. We're a spiritual entity. Okay? And so he basically goes through the war and says, I'm not going to declare one way or the other. Well, what he ends up finding himself at the end of the war is he's got no friends. Okay? Because the, the southern church rejected him. The northern church rejected him because he wouldn't declare for either side. And so what he ends up doing is starting a, a effectively, really, his own new presbytery. Uh, with, it's it's in, in Missouri. Uh, a, a group of churches like his that said, we're not going to declare one way or the other. Okay? Because we understand the church is strictly spiritual. It's not spiritual and civic. Israel was like that. It was a civic and, and it was a civic and ecclesiastical all rolled into one. But not now. Okay? And so James Hall Brooks really establishes his own separate presbytery. Uh, and though he eventually rejoined uh, the Presbyterian Church, I, I get the idea his, his heart was never in it. 
And so what James Hall Brooks then becomes is a leader within here the Bible Conference movement. Okay, uh, the Bible Conference movement was a was a series of Bible Conference groups that really started to grow up as the churches around them, the mainline denominational churches, began to give way to liberalism. Okay, they were denying. Uh, they were denying uh, inerrancy. They were denying specifically the miraculous elements of of, of scripture uh, related to the life of Christ. Okay, and so we we have this growing group of people dissatisfied with their churches, and they tended to collect in these Bible conferences. Probably the most well known of these was the Niagara Bible Conference, of which James Hallbrooks was the leader. Okay, and it was in these. Bible conferences that dispensationalism was really incubated. Uh, dispensationalism begins to grow and establish itself in a really meaningful way. Okay, and so that's where dispensationalism really gets its roots, uh, as you can as you can hear. But from what I'm saying, uh, dispensationalism so, sort of grows up together with fundamentalism. Okay, so the fundamentalist movement uh, that uh, really gains traction around the turn of the century, really into the uh, 1930s, a period of about 40 years there. Uh, fundamentalism grows up, and the, the predominant understanding of most of the fundamentalists was, was dispensationalism. Okay? And so this is really where it, it gets onto uh, the map. Uh, of course, it's during this time that uh, C.I. Schofield uh, publishes his study Bible which sort of becomes the manual for, uh, for dispensational, early dispensationalism. Uh, we've also got uh, um, uh, schools beginning at this time, Dallas Seminary, probably the major one, but it's not the only one. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there's several others. Uh, Gordon College, Moody Bible Institute, Practical Bible Training College, uh, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, Philadelphia School of the Bible, Grace Theological Seminary, all of these... Uh, Really have their start during these forty year this forty year period nineteen hundred uh, to around nineteen forty. Uh, Dallas Theological Seminary sort of becomes the academic hub uh, for dispensationalism, and they start churning out books. Um, and uh, these books are used throughout uh, throughout the country in Bible colleges, even some that weren't even of dispensational persuasion because nobody else was writing the key textbooks on the key doctrines. Uh, but the dispensationalists were. And so dispensationalism really grows uh, during this period. Um, and even today now, we've got s schools uh, representing uh, some newer ones, Master's Seminary out in California, Central Baptist Seminary, uh, Baptist Bible Seminary. I guess that's, it just became Summit University last week, so I have to update my notes. Uh, but Summit University now. Uh, for Faith Baptist Seminary, um, uh, these are these are JRBC school, Baptist Bible Seminary and Faith. Uh, our seminary, Detroit Baptist Seminary, and these are key institutions that I think have risen to prominence uh, to promote dispensationalism on an academic uh, level. So that's sort of the history of how dispensationalism came to prominence. Now, again, we're going to talk about the eschatology, the doctrine of the end times, but for now, the point I want to make is that wasn't the centerpiece of the system. Okay, That was an implication and a very important implication of the system, but I don't think that that was what tied it all together. It was all about the 
the identity and mission of the church vis-a-vis -vis the identity and mission of Israel. Okay, that's really where dispensationalism uh, gets its start. So that's sort of a history of how we get to where we are. Thoughts, questions that you might have up to this point? Next week we'll get into some of the nuts and bolts of dispensationalism, but I think it's, it's helpful uh, to put it into a historical context, and hopefully that was interesting. I love history. I enjoy telling the history parts. Uh, not everybody does. <laughs> so uh, hopefully, uh, uh, hopefully you at least uh, endure through it. Next week we'll get into some of the more uh, theological substance of the discussion. Okay? We good? Oh, uh, that, that thing that you read... Uh, you know that that piece about uh, you know Christians say that there's not. Yeah. Uh, was that somewhere else in the? No, it's not in the you notes. Just, you just or you have your own notes. Up yeah, there? I have. Yeah, I have lots of. I have. I have special notes with lots of okay, notes. Okay, so where, where was that from? That was in his dialogue. Uh, that was in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo. Okay. Uh, section eighty. Okay. We'll see you then next week. Thanks for uh, enduring.